Hello, and welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. Our discussion today follows up on our recent newsletter issue on unanswered questions about pseudomonas eradication. Our guest is that issue's author, Dr. Christopher Orman, Director of the Division of Pulmonary and Sleep Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics at Children's Mercy, Kansas City. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from GECUSA Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Gilead Sciences. Learning objectives for this audio program include discuss potential antibiotic eradication treatment strategies for early pseudomonas infection, evaluate a proposed therapeutic approach to failed pseudomonas eradication, and summarize a management plan for patients who have recurrent pseudomonas-positive respiratory cultures following failed eradication. Dr. Orman has disclosed that he has received royalties for written material from up-to-date pediatrics. He has also indicated that his presentation today will reference the unlabeled or unapproved use of inhaled colistin, as well as the use of inhaled antibiotics specifically labeled for use in eradication protocols, but not labeled for use in children less than six years of age. Dr. Orman, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Bob. It's a pleasure to talk with you and your listeners today. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you reviewed the current Cystic Fibrosis Foundation guidance and compared it to a contemporaneous Cochrane review, and you described how new research is working towards answering the key question of why some patients fail eradication. Today, I'd like to focus on how this information can impact clinical practice. So, start us off, if you would please, Doctor, with a patient's scenario. You provide care for a six-year-old boy with pancreatic insufficient cystic fibrosis. He has minimal respiratory symptoms with normal spirometry. His nutrition is good and he maintains a normal BMI. He does not expectorate sputum and has not previously grown pseudomonas aeruginosa from throat swab cultures. Respiratory care includes a bronchodilator followed by hypertonic saline and airway clearance twice daily. Dornase alpha is used once daily. Nutrition and GI care includes pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy and fat-soluble vitamin supplementation. His respiratory culture from a routine clinic visit grows pseudomonas aeruginosa for the first time. This child is asymptomatic, but with his first pseudomonas-positive culture. So AET, antibiotic eradication therapy, do you think it's necessary for this child? And if so, what would you consider as the most appropriate treatment plan? Chronic pseudomonas infection is very clearly associated with increased morbidity and mortality among CF patients. Therefore, I think antibiotic eradication therapy has really become an international standard of care, and it's clearly indicated for this child and any other patient with new emergence of pseudomonas from a respiratory culture. The EPIC and ELITE trials, which were reviewed in the newsletter, provide the most compelling data for AET and support the safety and efficacy of 300 milligrams of inhaled tobramycin twice daily for 28 days. This approach has been adopted by the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which strongly recommends inhaled antibiotic therapy for the treatment of initial or new growth of pseudomonas, favoring inhaled tobramycin 300 milligrams twice a day for 28 days. The European Cystic Fibrosis Society, in its consensus statement from the Artemino Conference, also states that antibiotic eradication therapy is recommended in CF. 28 days of tobramycin, again, 300 milligrams twice daily, is a recommended treatment strategy. They add that other treatment protocols have been shown to be of similar effectiveness and that an optimal regimen isn't really known. I want to follow up on the last part of what you just said, other treatment protocols. What are the alternatives to the tobramycin regimen, and when would you consider using them? Several different antibiotic eradication therapy treatment plans have been investigated. 
the Alpine study evaluated the use of 75 milligrams of inhaled as trionam three times daily for 28 days. This trial wasn't included in the CF Foundation or Cochrane reviews discussed in the newsletter for two reasons. First, only abstract data was available at the time of these analyses. And second, it was an open-label rather than randomized trial. However, the data from the trial indicates an eradication success rate similar to those reported for inhaled tobramycin, making this a viable treatment option. Several European trials have evaluated inhaled colistin and oral ciprofloxacin independently, as well as compared to inhaled tobramycin with and without oral ciprofloxacin. These studies have shown that a combination of inhaled colistin and oral ciprofloxacin are effective in pseudomonas eradication and are not inferior to 28 days of inhaled tobramycin. Thus, the use of inhaled colistin with oral ciprofloxacin is another reasonable treatment approach. The concern here is that colistin is not FDA-approved for inhaled use in the United States, and an inhaled preparation isn't available. When to use the treatment plans is a somewhat more challenging question. In the U.S., we certainly have more experience with inhaled tobramycin than other treatments, as well as more cumulative data. An alternate treatment plan is clearly appropriate for any patient with a history of an adverse reaction to tobramycin. As pointed out in the video paper reviewed in the newsletter, elevated tobramycin MIC is associated with an increased risk of eradication failure. Thus, an alternative plan may be appropriate when microbiology laboratory results suggest an increased MIC. Other considerations might include drug availability, cost, and patient preference. So, in the child you described, he's got a first-time pseudomonas-positive culture, and even though he's asymptomatic, the guidance says you should attempt eradication. So, you're going to use inhaled tobramycin, 300 milligrams twice a day, as the guidance recommends. My question, are there any benefits you might want to consider in using cycled inhaled antibiotic therapy, or adding oral anti-pseudomonal agents, or even providing a longer course of treatment? Your thoughts, please. The EPIC trial addressed two of these questions. The study found no benefit from cycled versus cultured therapy. Exploring this a little bit further, Mayor Hamlet reported that although more patients on psychotherapy achieved sustained eradication than those on culture-based therapy, those receiving culture-based therapy responded to subsequent therapy, and the prevalence of pseudomonas positivity was the same in both groups at the end of the trial. Additionally, the use of psychotherapy was associated with an increased risk of developing chronic pseudomonas infection during follow-up. So there's no evidence supporting a benefit associated with psychotherapy versus culture-based therapy and a potential for adverse effects. Similarly, oral ciprofloxacin didn't provide additional benefit, and the eradication rate in the cohort treated with inhaled tobramycin plus oral ciprofloxacin was similar to that treated with inhaled tobramycin alone. As reviewed in the newsletter, the ELITE trial compared 28-day versus 56-day treatment courses. No benefit was seen in the 56-day versus 28-day cohorts. Thus, 28 days of inhaled tobramycin, 300 milligrams twice daily, is a gold standard for eradication therapy, and there's no benefit to psychotherapy, the addition of oral antibiotics, or prolonged treatment. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Christopher Orman from Children's Mercy, Kansas City, in just a moment. This is Bob Busker. I'm managing editor of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. Each issue reviews the current literature in areas of importance to pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, infectious disease specialists, pediatricians, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, nurses, and physical therapists. Bi-monthly podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts, providing case-based scenarios to help bring that new information into practice in the clinic. 
subscription to eCystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. Continuing education credit for each issue and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information on this educational activity, to subscribe to and receive eCystic Fibrosis Review without charge, and to access back issues, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. I'd also like to tell you about the CF Family Day Meeting Builder. This is a one-stop shop to help you create patient and caregiver educations in Family Day meetings. To find out more, please visit www.cffamilyday.org. One more thing I'd like to tell you about is the new Get Smart app. Get Smart, safe means of administering the right therapy, and that applies to extended release and long-acting opioids, is available for CME, CE, and MOC credit at no cost. Visit dkbmed.com forward slash smart to download the Get Smart app for Apple iOS, Android, or desktop today. That's dkbmed.com forward slash smart. Welcome back to this eCystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. We're with Dr. Christopher Orman from Children's Mercy, Kansas City, discussing how the new insights into pseudomonas eradication he presented in his newsletter issue can be applied in the clinic. So let's continue, if you would, please, doctor, with our next patient scenario. So let's talk about a 14-year-old girl that you care for. She has pancreatic insufficient cystic fibrosis and mild respiratory symptoms with some daily cough. Her baseline FEV1 is in the upper 80s. Her nutrition is good, and she maintains a normal BMI. She doesn't typically expectorate sputum, but does have a productive cough during pulmonary exacerbations. She typically grows MSSA and has recently grown pseudomonas from an expectorated sputum. In an attempt at eradication therapy, she was treated with inhaled tobramycin 300 milligrams twice daily for 28 days. Her routine respiratory care includes a bronchodilator followed by hypertonic saline and airway clearance twice daily, and then Dornay's Alpha once daily. Nutrition and GI care includes pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy and fat-soluble vitamin supplementation. A repeat sputum specimen following eradication therapy has shown continued growth of pseudomonas. Her sputum still shows pseudomonas, so this patient has failed antibiotic eradication therapy. What are the next steps in treating her? So failed eradication therapy is actually a relatively common scenario. We know from the trials reviewed in the newsletter that eradication failure occurs in up to 40% of patients. The greatest challenge in this situation is that we really don't have any data upon which to base therapeutic decisions and very little guidance from existing medical literature. Failed eradication wasn't addressed in the CF Foundation guidelines. It was discussed in the European Consensus Guidelines referenced previously, but only in very generic terms. The Artemino recommendation is repeated first-line eradication therapy if the patient fails the initial attempt, but specific regimens are not included, and there's no statement regarding changing regimens or duration of therapy. Similarly, the recommendation for continued failure to eradicate after a second course of therapy is, quote, aggressive third-line clearance, close quotes, but this isn't defined. As I said, there's no evidence upon which to base treatment decisions and very little guidance. So, without evidence-based guidance, what to do next? That next step has to be based on expert opinion and clinical experience. Uh, So, let me ask you, based on your clinical experience, what would you do in this situation? I usually provide a second 28-day course of therapy with 300 milligrams of inhaled tobramycin twice daily. I don't typically add an oral antibiotic, but it's certainly a consideration. If you think about the airways being obstructed distal to mucus impaction, it's certainly possible that inhaled antibiotics aren't reaching those distal areas, and the systemic therapy might be beneficial. 
Changing antibiotics is also a consideration. If the laboratory reports suggest elevated MIC for tobramycin, I'd consider using inhaled as TRIANAM 75 milligrams three times daily for 28 days. It's worth mentioning that a lot of times patients have not received significant inhaled or systemic antibiotic therapy, but most often they don't have elevated MICs for tobramycin. I would consider inhaled as TRIANAM mostly as a matter of family preference. Many families would prefer to do three short treatments a day versus two longer treatments per day. And again, both are equally effective, so there's no reason not to comply with family preferences in this situation. Well, let's take things a step further. Let's say your patient has a second course of eradication therapy, but continues to be positive for pseudomonas. Is this a point where you would consider hospitalization for IV antibiotic therapy? As we've already learned, there's not really a great deal of guidance in this situation. I think that hospitalization for intravenous antibiotic therapy is certainly a reasonable thing to do. Although it's really disruptive to families and extremely burdensome, hospitalization for aggressive therapy allows us to do several things. The morbidity associated with chronic pseudomonas infection warrants exhausting all approaches to eradication. Additionally, intravenous therapy may allow antibiotics to reach distal portions of the respiratory tract that are obstructed by mucus. And then lastly, hospitalization ensures that all therapies, including eradication therapy and airway clearance and others, are appropriately delivered. And would you continue the inhaled antibiotic? I typically include an alternate inhaled antibiotic if I find that I need to admit patients for failed eradication therapy. If I've used two cycles of inhaled topromycin, this would generally be inhaled as TRIANAM. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, Dr. Orman. We've got time to look at one more patient scenario, so uh, if you would, please. You provide care for a 17-year-old adolescent who has a daily productive cough with a baseline FEV1 in the low 80s. He has marginal nutrition with a BMI at the 25th percentile. He typically grows MRSA from sputum specimens. Routine respiratory care includes a bronchodilator followed by hypertonic saline and airway clearance twice daily. Dornase Alpha is used once daily. Nutrition and GI care includes pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy and fat-soluble vitamin supplementation. He's grown pseudomonas from multiple sputum cultures in the past year and has undergone three courses of eradication therapy. Two of his most recent respiratory cultures have grown pseudomonas despite hospitalization for pseudomonas eradication. Three courses of eradication therapy, two of them in the hospital, and he's still continuing to grow pseudomonas. At what point do you consider a patient to be chronically infected, as opposed to having earlier intermittent pseudomonas infection? There are a number of different classification systems used when discussing pseudomonas infection, but no universally accepted definition of chronic infection. Although there is no universally accepted definition, one of the more frequently referenced classification systems is the one used in LEADS and described by Lee and colleagues in 2003. They classify patients as never infected, which means patients have never had a sputum culture or throat swab positive for pseudomonas. Patients are free of infection if they've had no growth of pseudomonas during the past 12 months but have had a previous positive pseudomonas culture. Patients have intermittent infection if pseudomonas cultures are positive in 50% or fewer of the previous 12 months. And then they define chronic infection as pseudomonas positive cultures in more than 50% of the previous 12 months. So by that classification system, this patient would be considered chronically infected. What's your approach to treatment? 
If our approach to fail eradication therapy suffers from lack of evidence upon which to base therapeutic decisions, our approach to the management of chronic pseudomonas infection suffers from even greater lack of evidence. The CF Foundation consensus guidelines for the management of lung health include an A rating indicating a high degree of certainty of substantial benefit for the use of inhaled dobromycin in patients with moderate to severe lung disease. They also provide an A rating indicating a high degree of certainty of substantial benefit for the use of inhaled estreonem in patients with moderate to severe lung disease. Lastly, they recognize that an optimum treatment approach has yet to be identified and there are key unanswered questions. The European Consensus Conference recommends intermittent one-month-on, one-month-off treatment with an inhaled aminoglycoside or continuous administration of inhaled colistin, which again is not approved in the United States. Changing antibiotic regimen should be considered in patients with frequent exacerbations or rapid lung function deterioration. And lastly, consideration for continuous alternating antibiotic therapy for patients with unstable disease. My personal approach is the use of inhaled antibiotics in CF patients with chronic pseudomonas is continuous alternating antibiotic therapy. The choice of specific antibiotics is based on individual patient microbiology results. I want to stress that this is based on my own philosophy of care and personal experience, not evidence, as there is none addressing this particular question. A complete discussion of the issue is beyond the scope of what we can do here today, but as pointed out by the CF Foundation consensus statement, it is a key unanswered question. As we've discussed, there really isn't any guidance for optimum use of inhaled antibiotics in CF care. Again, I believe that the use of continuous alternating antibiotic therapy is appropriate. If we look at diabetes or hypertension or other disease processes that are always there, those diseases are treated every day, not alternating days or months. So my feeling is that for patients who have pseudomonas in their lower respiratory tract all the time, it's really most appropriate to treat them every day as opposed to alternating months. Another consideration is in that the patients that I've treated with continuous alternating therapy, I have seen gradual improvement in lung function over time suggesting there may be some benefit to this type of therapy. A moment ago, doctor, you said the CF Foundation recognizes that there are key unanswered questions about the optimum treatment approach to pseudomonas infections. So before we wrap things up, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. To your mind, what are the most important unanswered questions about pseudomonas eradication therapy? I think there are a couple of really critical unanswered questions that we desperately need answers to. The first one is that although none of the clinical trials reported to date has identified patient-specific factors that are associated with fail eradication, continued efforts to identify patient characteristics that increase the risk of failure are important. Another important research question is the identification of pseudomonas-specific predictors of eradication failure. Mayor Hamlin and Vidya, as described in the newsletter issue, have both indicated that some pseudomonas characteristics can be identified by microbiology laboratories and may predict failed eradication therapy. Collaboration with microbiology laboratories may allow more individualized AET regimens. Additional research may yield information regarding pseudomonas markers which place patients at increased risk for eradication failure. Finally, much more research is necessary on our approach to failed eradication. A much more rigorous and evidence-based approach is desperately needed. I do want to add that the debate over a, quote, best regimen is somewhat irrelevant to me. There are three well-described effective approaches to antibiotic eradication therapy, none of which has been shown to be superior to the others. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, Doctor. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. So to begin, potential eradication treatment strategies for early pseudomonas infection. So we 
reviewed three potential eradication regimens today. These include inhaled tobramycin, 300 milligrams twice daily for 28 days, inhaled as trianam, 75 milligrams three times per day for 28 days, and inhaled colistin combined with oral ciprofloxacin. All have been proven effective as none has been shown to be superior to another. So any of these regimens would be appropriate. The CEF Foundation and European Consensus documents do state that tobramycin is a preferred therapy. I want to add that although colistin is widely used in European countries, an inhaled form of colistin is currently not available in the United States. And our second learning objective, the proposed therapeutic approaches to pseudomonas eradication failures. As we've discussed, there really isn't any compelling data to guide clinicians when treating patients who failed a first attempt at eradication. The European Consensus Conference suggested a second course of first-line therapy, which is likely the approach most North American clinicians would take. This could be any of the three regimens previously reviewed, but is often inhaled tobramycin, which has been recommended by the CF Foundation and the European Consensus Conference. The use of different inhaled antibiotics, oral antibiotics, and intravenous antibiotics have all been considered to be reasonable by the CFF. And finally, developing a management plan for patients who have recurrent pseudomonas-positive respiratory cultures following failed eradication. Again, there really is very little evidence regarding the optimal approach to chronic suppressive antibiotic therapy for CF patients who have chronic pseudomonas infection. Good evidence exists for the independent use of multiple inhaled antibiotics and was reviewed today. The real question is how to best utilize existing medications in combination as well as those medications that will undoubtedly be developed in the future. Dr. Christopher Orman from Children's Mercy in Kansas City Thank you for participating in this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Bob, you're welcome. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and your listeners today. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME-CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. 
This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, and Kiesi USA Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.